Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is April 13th, 2018, Friday the 13th. What could possibly go wrong? Joining me is Bill Crystal, the founder of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me, Bill. I appreciate it very, very much. Good to be with you, Charlie. All right, I want to start off uh, by asking you about uh, something you tweeted out this morning. The buffoonishness of Trump and his circle tends to make us too confident the truth will come out and justice will be done and insufficiently alarmed that this time the cover-up could succeed. The firing power, the pardon power, and loyal enablers, enablers are a formidable combination. So talk to me about that. I actually think you're dead right about that, but it's a scary prospect. Yeah, I was on Morning Joe this morning and listening to the segment before me. I said, well, the lawyers being slightly contemptuous of Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, and people saying Trump doesn't think ahead and how foolish it would be to fire Rosenstein, which I think is a real possibility. And I thought, I don't know. You know, Nixon sort of didn't get away with it, so to speak. Joe McCarthy ultimately was curbed and uh, didn't do that much permanent damage. Um, and I'm not saying Trump is guilty necessarily or, or you know, making any particular comparison. But to the degree that uh, Trump seems to be very concerned that certain things don't come out, uh, to the degree that it would be in our interest that we learn what really happened in 2016 and subsequently, um, I'm not so sure that it's going to be that easy to stop Trump from using a combination, as I say, of the firing power and the pardon power or the promise of the pardon power. And then the uh, fierce defenders he has on on Fox and elsewhere, the Newt Gingrich comparing the FBI the, mm. to the Gestapo and so forth, you know, it, it, that he could muscle his way through this. I mean, and I, that's one reason I've been so concerned that Republicans step up and protect Mueller and say we need to see the truth here for the sake of the country uh, and not just assume that, you know, we can the, the Republican officials, elected officials in particular, have kind of wanted to have the best of both worlds. The truth will come out. So, you know, if, if there's stuff there, Trump will pay a price, but they don't have to really stick their neck out. But I think it's time for people to stick their neck out a little. Yeah, I want to get to that in just a moment. So just at, as of this moment, and it's it's the morning of Friday the 13th, uh, at this do you will he um, do you think he will be firing Rod Rosenstein, uh, Jeff Sessions, Robert Mueller? What where are we at? Do you think? I don't know. I was told that earlier this week, and this is secondhand and the usual kind of, you know, God knows the things happen in the Trump White House and then there's not follow through all the time. I'll make two points. First, I do believe this week he, he asked actually his White House counsel and, and, and the other senior staff to prepare sort of a set of options for him of, of how he would fire Rosenstein and how that would work in terms of the Vacancies Act and who would step in or could he select someone to step in and how that would affect the Mueller investigation. So I think it's very much under real consideration, not just Trump talking at 10 at night with some friend on the phone and letting off steam. I mean, real sort of internal you know, policy writing memo type of consideration. Now, he may choose not to follow through on it, uh, but that brings me to my second point. Uh, the conventional wisdom, I think, and this was, I think, on Morning Joe this morning also, someone said this, you know, Trump, back and forth, changes his mind all the time, whoever the last person to talk to him is, et cetera, et cetera. I don't really agree with that. Trump directionally kind of knows where he wants to go. He backs off from going certain places because he thinks it will be risky or he can't make it happen because of the internal structure of his administration. But then he eventually sort of goes there. And I mean, that's for things that I agree with him on, incidentally, as well as things I don't like. So he wanted to move the capital, the embassy to Jerusalem. He was told he couldn't. He didn't do it at first. He did it. He wants to get out of the Iran deal. He's going to mm -hmm. do that. So on policy issues and personnel issues, I think we've seen that with some of the firings of McMaster and Priebus, you know, he eventually 
kind of does what he wants to do. Uh, he figures out how to circumvent various obstacles that are in his way. And I, he clearly, clearly wants Mueller gone and the Mueller investigation ended or severely limited. And I guess I think he'll kind of keep pursuing that goal. How will Republicans, if, if he were to do this, we're getting out ahead here, if, if he if he was to have a Saturday night massacre or a Friday night massacre or a, or a Friday the 13th massacre, whatever, how would Republicans on Capitol Hill react? How should they react? How will it, in fact, they react? Yeah, like the Friday the 13th massacre. I hadn't quite thought of that. Uh, yeah. Isn't, is there some movie? I can't remember anymore from your youth, Friday the 13th. There, there will probably, be. There are probably like <laughs> 20 of these horror movies, right? And. Uh, well, that's a good question. So they're, 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 the Republicans have been a little more forthcoming, I guess, in the last week or two about letting the investigation continue. Some interest in some legislation that might help make that happen. There are complications with that legislation as well. Um, and then a lot of talk about if he does it, it'll be horrible, end of his presidency, backlash, uh, will really be upset. But, you know, he may decide that he can live with that, call their bluff. Are they really going to go ahead and impeach him for firing, especially Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general? He, it's something obviously within a president's prerogative. Um, and he may think he's got a Republican Congress now. Uh, he's doing okay in the polls, not great, but he's, you know, his approval is, isn't plummeting or anything. He's got his base. He's certainly got people energized on Fox and elsewhere who are defending him and attacking Comey and Mueller. The Comey book, ironically, could be a good time for Trump to do it in the sense that Comey, I think, may have overreached a little and looks a little petty in some of his criticisms. And Mueller's, a, frankly, a much, I think, a more impressive person than Comey. And, but if you can make it sort of about Comey and see, Comey doesn't and like it. Seems, and the book seems to have triggered him this morning based on uh, the, the tweets this morning referring to Comey as a slime ball. So yeah. obviously, right. um, mission accomplished in triggering the president, uh, at least today. Yeah. And I, but, you know, you can imagine, on, you know, Comey's wife and daughters voted for Hillary, something Comey just mentions, and it's fine. But, but, mm-hmm. but of course, you know, this proves they're a bunch of liberals. I think it's a little, little ridiculous. But I would say if I were advising Trump, you could say well, this isn't a bad time to sort of pick a fight, sort of you fit someone like Rosenstein, a career guy, Mueller, very impressive man, into a sort of a broader kind of, you know, FBI that doesn't like me, it isn't treating me fairly, it all gets kind of muddied, you get your defense from your enablers, as I call them, or their, let's just say, his defenders, and maybe he thinks this is the moment where he can sort of muscle through on this. Yeah, but there's the new uh, post-ABC poll out this morning uh, suggesting that uh, nearly 7 in 10 adults say they support Mueller's focus on possible collusion with Russia. 64% say they want the special counsel investigating Trump's business activities. 58% majority supports investigating alleged payments by Trump associates to silent uh, women uh, who uh, say they had affairs with him. But as you point out, he's probably more concerned about that that hardcore base and that hardcore base is not movable. So let's go to... Well, just on that, Charlie, yeah, I, yeah, just, yeah, I mean, it, it is a compared to... I Look, I think it's it's not going to help him. I mean, it's going to be unpopular if he does something, and it should be, but uh, it's compared to what, right? It depends how much he fears what the investigation, if permitted to go forward, will discover. A lot of the discussion doesn't sort of take that into account. Well, of course, Trump, it's not in his interest to do something because it'll be unpopular if he does it. Well, compared to what? Even if he does all of these things, and we're speculating, it doesn't really shut down the investigation, though, does it? Yeah, that's uh, a problem. The, the FBI uh, investigation can continue. The, the 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 rate of Michael Cohen's office indicates that there's a separate criminal investigation. There are state attorney generals that can pursue this. He can use his pardon power, but the pardon power doesn't extend to uh, state criminal action. And I wonder whether or not there's anyone pointing out to him that that even if he uh, you know drops this bomb on the investigation, it does not go away. 
No, look, that's a very good point, and I, I, people have said that, and I think it's right. I mean, he could throw wrenches into it, I imagine, and slow it down and force people to redo certain things, and he may think that's that's good enough. And Mueller, he may be find a particularly formidable opponent, you know, and, and obviously, <clears throat> but as you say, the whole thing doesn't go away. The files are there. The the investigators presumably remain on the payroll or, or go over to the, it goes over to the FBI, which continues to, it uh, continues an investigation that it started before the special counsel existed. These reports might still be released. The, yeah. So no, I know it doesn't take him off the hook. He's looking at a, a, a collection of pretty bad choices. I mean, if he were confident that nothing really damaging will come out, leave aside impeachable or indictable. Uh, nothing really damaging would come out. Of course, he would let it go forward. It's the rational thing to do. It avoids all kinds of problems. Um, the the firing really is a something you do only, I think, if you're pretty worried about letting nature run its course, and then you take some risks because you're so worried about what will happen if you don't do anything. Well, the um, among the latest developments, these reports that Michael Cohen, his uh, his fixer lawyer was in the habit of taping conversations. So, of course, the, the narrative on Twitter is, oh, Lordy, there, there are tapes. <laughs> remember, you, you and I are old enough to remember when we found out that there were actually White House tapes under, under Nixon. I, I don't know whether this is going to rise to that level, but this cannot, be, um, this, this cannot be spreading confidence in Trump world to know that Michael Cohen might have been taping some of these, these phone conversations. The other story, and I do want to ask you about this because I imagine that this, this leads to some mixed feelings, the report that uh, the President Trump is going to issue a pardon to Scooter Libby, um, which, of course, goes back a, a very long time. There are some critics who are saying, look, this isn't about Scooter Libby. This is about the President of the United States flexing his pardon power uh, and sending a signal that, uh, yes, lying and obstructing justice, uh, you know, that, that I will use my power to get people off the hook for lying and obstructing justice. And, of course, this uh, this also goes back to, to the Comey era. So I know that the Weekly Standard editorialized today that this was the right decision. But in this context, isn't this kind of one of the first shots of what you were warning about uh, earlier this morning about the the president using his power to uh, to obstruct this investigation? Yeah, I mean, I have mixed feelings in this context. I think it's, uh, I, I think I wrote a piece 11 years ago calling on Bush to pardon Scooter Libby, mm -hmm. and I, you know, he didn't. He, he offered clemency and uh, gave him clemency, and I, I think the pardon remains the right thing to do in principle, and so I'm for it. Having said that, I, I, yeah, I wish it were. I wish he had done it a month in. If you want, if he thought it was so important to pardon Scooter Libby, it's a ten-year-old case. He could have had his lawyers, you know, the White House counsel, look at it quickly when he took over, uh, and he could have. It could have happened uh, way before uh, Robert Mueller was the special counsel. Doing it now, this week, and there's no urgency. Obviously, there's no time pressure at all, one way or the other. So he could also wait another six months. He could tell Scooter Libby, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it, I don't know, November, mm -hmm. Christmas, Christmas time. But doing it now does, therefore, uh, implicate other things. And I think it is very much part of a, a, a uh, package, uh, you know, a bunch of signaling to uh, his associates that he has the pardon power and that he isn't afraid to use it. Now, I think the one thing that sort of makes me less, you know, uh, uh, indignant, I guess, about it now, and we're willing to say, look, uh, Libby deserves the pardon, so, is that he's already signaled that. I mean, it's not as if they hadn't thought, he said it, he pardoned Arpeo, but he's also talked about his pardon power, and let it be known that they're looking at the pardon power. So, I don't know that the pardon of Libby is some, you know, huge uh, signal 
that wouldn't otherwise have been sent. But I do have much more. If you had told me, you know, 10 years ago, a Republican president's going to come in and pardon Scooter Libby, I would say that's great. That's just, you know, it's not uh, of great significance going forward in terms of anything Libby or anyone else is going to do. But it's a nice way to sort of end that chapter. It should have been done 10 years ago. Um, and uh, if you had told me it would happen, I would have been sort of uh, had you know, simply praising of it. And now I do have mixed feelings because obviously Trump is using it to send the signal, uh, an unfortunate signal to his associates. Well, I want to talk to you about uh, this campaign, Republicans for the Rule of Law. You're hitting this up and uh, the you've been running ads on, uh, am I correct, it's uh, ad on, on, on Fox and Friends, at least in the, D, in the D.C. market. So tell me a little bit about Republicans for the Rule of Law, uh, the background and what you hope to accomplish. A few of us, Mona Charon and Sarah Longwell, me, a couple others, I put this group together just she thought someone should speak up for Republicans who want to let the Mueller probe go on and, and act in an appropriate and proper way and uh, not try to short circuit it and not demonize the FBI and, and so forth. And so we just put together a couple of ads, put, put one of them up on Fox and Friends, where the, which the president watches, so he might see it. I've got to say the response, and it's online, of course, and um, people can take a look at the webpage. I think it's rulelawrepublicans.com, but just, just Google it. Um, the response has been pretty uh, impressive. I mean, just an awful lot of people emailing in, people like offering to contribute. We didn't even have a, a button for contributions on the page. It didn't really occur to us. To, you know, we've raised some money from some donors, and uh, we didn't really think we'd do kind of grassroots contributions. People want to contribute because they care about it. We've gotten some eloquent emails from people, uh, a lot of people signing the petition. So I think there is – it's not well, – as you say, the polls suggest a majority of Republicans want the uh, Mueller investigation to continue and go to its conclusion. So that means – and, of course, a majority of Republicans are Trump supporters. So that means you can be at once – and this is perfectly reasonable – a Trump supporter and say, but look, let the legal process work its way out. What strikes me from these emails is also that there there are people – though, who are very upset by the, con the congressional Republicans, upset by Trump's attacks on the FBI and on the legal process, the attacks on Comey, which are now really uh, vociferous, but also on Mueller and Rosenstein, uh, and who think that's inappropriate too. So I think it's a little bit of, a, I won't say it's a hidden majority by any means, but a silent group of Republicans uh, who are happy to have us speaking out uh, on behalf of the rule of law, something Republicans have cared so much about over the decades. Uh, the congressional Republicans haven't been speaking out. Maybe they will. They're doing a little more now. Maybe they'll do a little more under the pressure or under the persuasion of these ads. I, you know, I was thinking about this earlier today uh, with Nixon. I mean, it was important. I mean, it's important for the country, most of all. Mm -hmm. But think about the Republican Party and the conservative movement, and you and I remember these days. It was important. People were slow, actually, to come to grips with what Nixon had done and that he really had covered right. up and the t 18 minutes on the tape and so forth. I remember being in college then and sort of wanting to believe that Nixon was, you know, not really guilty and it was just kind of a messed up White House that had made a few errors and so forth. And there was not a systematic cover-up. But it was very important for the future of the party that ultimately major figures in Congress and major figures in the conservative movement, Barry Goldwater in particular, Jim Buckley, uh, went to the White House and said, Mr. President, this has to stop, or Mr. Then, Mr. President, you've got to resign. Very important that young columnists like Bill Sapphire and George Will, this is what, 40 plus years ago, uh, were critics of Nixon. The National Review was critical of Nixon. So I think it really helped the Republican Party and the conservative movement come back. 
faster than it would otherwise, that people didn't think, they thought the Republicans probably got along a little too long with Nixon, you know, but they didn't really feel like they were complicit. It was a Nixon problem, it was a Nixon White House problem, but it wasn't a kind of conservative movement problem. One of the worst things, and you've written eloquently about this Mm -hmm. yourself, Charlie, about the last year or two is the degree to which the conservative movement of the Republican Party seemed to become complicit in everything Trump has done to uh, sort of damage our discourse and, and, and degrade our norms and damage our institutions and, in this case, uh, undermine the rule of law. And, and there, I, I think standing up against that is important if we care about uh, a Republican Party or a conservative movement in the future. Well, let's talk about Paul Ryan. Um, Steve Hayes has, a, has an interesting piece up where he says, uh, look, it's, uh, th- th- this, is, this is not an inflection point for what's happened to the conservative movement, but it is an exclamation point. So you, your, your thoughts, uh, you and I have known Paul Ryan for many, many years, and, and it's certainly a, a dramatic development. Uh, we're old enough to remember when Paul Ryan was the future of the Republican Party, and uh, now he's uh, he's he's headed off. Why? Why? What? What? Just your thoughts on 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 the on the end of Paul Ryan's political career? I think Steve's piece is very good, and I, I agree with that. And what you you've said also about it and written about about Ryan. I mean, for me, the one way to think about it though is in 2012. I remember how excited I was actually that Ryan was picked by Romney as as vice presidential uh, choice. We had sort of campaigned for it to the degree we campaigned for things at the Weekly Standard. And I thought, okay, this is really the new Republican Party. Romney, I respect, of course, older figure. But Ryan, a younger person driven by ideas, willing to take on the tough uh, issues like entitlements. People forget what an achievement it was of his to bring the entire House Republican Conference, which was full of politicians who as always, prefer avoiding tough uh, issues and tough positions over to, you know, a pretty fundamental reform of Medicare and uh, and, and other That was extraordinary. That really, yeah. that really was extraordinary. And the right thing to yeah. do, the responsible thing to do. And uh, overall, a, a kind of mark, free market-oriented Republican who was strong on defense, but, but, you know, open and inclusive in terms of the party's future. Uh, not, not a, it wasn't, I don't agree with him 100% and everything, but an awfully good image for the party. That was 2012. That was the ascendant Paul Ryan. If you had told me then that six years from now, Paul Ryan would be retiring from politics and Donald Trump would be the president of the United States and it would be his Republican Party, Donald Trump, who would have just done the birther stuff in 2011 and early 2012, um, which we all thought was ludicrous and really despicable, uh, I would have said, geez, really? I would, just wouldn't have believed it. I wouldn't have believed it. No. So for me, it's a depressing story about the arc of the Republican Party and the conservative movement over the last six years. It, it, why do you think he did it now? I guess he just didn't want to run for re-election. And then, I mean, the conventional view is that he'd run for re-election, and you're closer to than I am yeah. probably, but, and then I step down so. after the election, you know, and if, if they, especially if they lost the majority. And a couple of other, I think, recent speakers have done that. I maybe thought that would, you know, it was unfair in a way to the constituents in the first congressional district of Wisconsin. They should, you know, know if they're, uh, the person they're voting for is going to be there for the next two years. Uh, but but it one uh, from his point of view, unfortunate side effect I think of his stepping down is it it will be demoralizing I think to other House Republican candidates. I've got to think donors look at that and say, sure. geez, they're throwing in the towel on the House. Maybe they'll give money to the Senate candidates. So I think he, uh, but I guess he just decided he wanted to be honest, and if he's not going to serve yeah. in the next two years, he should say so now. Well, I was talking to somebody who was uh, who's been close to him and said, "Look, you know, basically he's had enough, and there's nothing really redeeming around to grab onto anymore. N- n- nothing is going to get better. He's not going to get any of his agenda passed through." And 
and I, you can only imagine the, the the wear and tear of having to deal uh, both with with an absolutely uncontrollable caucus and a, an undisciplined and erratic uh, president. I, th- I think it's going to be interesting, though, to sort out the the moral and political choice. And Steve writes about it's the moral and political choice that, that Paul Ryan made after the election to not break with with Donald Trump, uh, the, the compromises that he had to make. He he. Uh, he, you know, he had been so outspoken during the campaign, and you and I both know him, and and know that he's really the both the ideological and uh, you know the personal opposite in every respect from from Donald Trump. But this 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 compromise, which I have, I think probably unkindly <laughs> described as a Faustian bargain, uh, I I think people are going to be made to be uh, debating for a long time whether or not he did the right thing. So, do you think he made the right decision by becoming? Donald Trump's enabler slash wingman in Congress? No, I mean, I don't. I respect Paul Ryan, but I just think that was a mistake. And I can see how he started down that path. And it's true when you start down a path, it's hard to veer away from it at some point. You know, you keep kind of rationalizing the next step. But I think it left him, it ended up putting him and the party and really the country in an unfortunate place. He, he is still speaker. And on the issue we were talking about earlier, he could do some good now by being very, very strong in telling President Trump to uphold the rule of law, not fire Mueller and so forth. I think that would be nice if he really stepped up on that in his remaining months in office. I, I, I saw somebody on Twitter saying, um, you know, Paul Paul Ryan standing up to uh, to Donald Trump is the new Trump pivot. You know, when, you know <laughs> yeah. when will the pivot take place? When will the pivot take place? But uh, certainly we have seen this extraordinary phenomenon of, uh, of Republicans who've announced that they're not running for reelection suddenly becoming much more independent and outspoken. People like you know, Trey Gowdy, uh, Charlie Dent, uh, certainly Jeff Flake even before that. Uh, do you think, going back to the beginning of our conversation, if Donald Trump this weekend were to pull the trigger um, on the Department of Justice on this investigation, do you think that we would hear a more more of a vocal pushback from Paul Ryan than we've heard so far. Yes. Do you think it will happen? I mean, we all we, we we would like to see it happen, but will it happen? Um, I don't know, but I hope I so. Don't know either. <laughs> I hope so. No, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, um, that's a good. That's other, a good. That's a good note to end on. You know, an honest note for this podcast <laughs> that we actually do not know. Right. Um, okay. I actually have one other question though, yeah. um, because the other major uh, issue on the table is uh, Syria, and of course, uh, all indications are that there's going to be some sort of military action in Syria. What should president do if the president called you up, Bill Crystal, and said, "What action should I take in the wake of uh, the use of chemical weapons in Syria?" You have to make Assad pay a real price, and it, it hopefully wouldn't just be a one-off bombing, but uh, maybe sustained attacks, but also attacks on serious parts of his uh, regime that would weaken him. I still don't give up on the prospect <coughs> at all <coughs> of regime change in Syria. I think it would be a good thing. It might be chaotic for a while. Uh, but again, that would require a whole different strategy of supporting our friends, something we haven't done for years. And it's gotten very late in the day and obviously much harder to do now. So it's a very difficult situation. It's not one you can just sit here and say, well, this is the easy, obvious, do A, B, and C. It's all going to turn out great. But I I think uh, you just cannot let this kind of use of chemical weapons, uh, which A, are generally banned, but B, he had specifically committed not to do it. We had sort of agreed to uh, a commitment by him and by Russia that they wouldn't use obviously. And now we just look foolish and taken advantage of. You put that together with Russia's use of uh, chemical weapons actually in the assassination attempt in the United Kingdom, and you have a situation where if these things are not punished seriously, you're looking at a world where just every dictator thinks, look, there are no norms anymore. I can get away with anything. 
Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining me on this uh, Friday the 13th. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday. We'll do this again.